Welcome to the Journey to the State podcast. This is Brian Frazier. The goal of this podcast is to discover what has shaped the musicians that are shaping and making today's music. Uh, we'll cover current projects, uh, but we always start at the beginning of the musician's journey. This is episode number five, and I am honored to have as my guest, Mark, uh, aka Gersh, and Bryn Gershmel. Mark, along with uh, Billy Smiley, was one of the founding members of Whiteheart, where Mark was the principal songwriter, keyboardist, backing, and sometimes lead vocalist. And Bryn was keyboardist and songwriter and vocalist for Rachel Rachel. Uh, Mark and Bryn have been writing and recording music together under the Soul Breather moniker, and it's a great, great honor to have you both. Mark and Bryn, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. How are you guys doing? What's what's the weather like this time of year in Nashville? Cold. It, it, <laughs> that's the voice of a California girl. <laughs> uh, we've had snow. It's been awesome. Oh, good. Good. We love Nashville. We, as I mentioned in our little pre-chat, we were back there this summer. Loved it all except Memphis. Memphis was so muggy that uh, I almost melted. So as we mentioned, you know, this podcast explores the journey that, that you guys have taken. So what we're going to do is take a 30,000 foot view of the path you guys have taken leading up to your new album. And we'll zoom in on some highlights along the way. I actually had the pleasure of meeting both of you guys eons ago. Uh, I saw Whiteheart several times. Um, I remember having a nice chat with Gersh on the Highlands tour when you guys played Knott's Berry Farm. Um, which I can't even remember what year that was. It was a while ago. What what year was, which years did you guys tour on um, Highlands? Would have been 94, I think. Yeah, and okay. and I, remember, I remember that night because I think Petra had played before us and one of their crew had left a roll of gaff tape on the stage. And oh. I jumped from the drum riser down to the ground and... I landed on the <laughs> oh. I landed on the tape roll, and I had a rather. I think I tore some high ankle ligament. Uh, I did the second show sitting in a chair with. Crutches. Oh wow! Yeah, that's why I remember that. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, and then and then Brynn, as I mentioned to you last week when we were just chatting a little bit, I saw Rachel Rachel when you guys were touring with Guardian at a show in L.A. I don't remember which album you guys were touring on, but I remember having a really nice conversation with you. And for some reason, I I had an acoustic guitar with me. I didn't want to leave it in the car. And I, I was having some issues with it. And I thought, oh, she's a professional musician. She could probably fix anything. So, oh, yeah. my goodness. You're like, yeah, you probably just want to take that to a shop. They can probably <laughs> fix that. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning, Mark. So how did you start to become a piano player? Well, I grew up in a very musical household, and my mother was a conservatory graduate on piano and had boatloads of students. And she was a, she was a wonderful player, but she was an even better teacher. And even when I went to college, when I had some really good instructors in college, nobody was better than my mother, which is just a tribute to her. Uh, her gifts, but what she was really great at was listening. That was my first lesson about being a Christian musician was from my mother that, wow. that became a part of Whiteheart because she she would have every Christmas we would have, <laughs> I mean, literally mounds of Christmas cards awesome. from her former students who still wanted to keep in touch with her because when she was sitting next to them while she was teaching them piano, she was listening to their lives because she was hands down the best listener I've ever met. Wow. So that already started something else just than music. Yeah, she she used to tell stories about me plunking out little melodies when I was three years old on the piano. And awesome. So uh, so I grew up and then my dad was also a really 
good music. Not not her caliber, but he was he was an English professor, which oh. was so that that was the lyrical side coming in. But they were both interface, both played pipe organ. I would uh, stand in the living room and uh, they had a score to Handel's Messiah. And oh. it was the new we had the New York Philharmonic's version of the Messiah with Leonard Bernstein. And one of the soloists, the tenor, was a guy that my mother used to accompany at school. So there was a nice connection there, but I used to stand there with a score <laughs> in, a, in a wand when I was like 10 years old and try to conduct the Messiah. Uh, so. That was Whiteheart part of the, the Handel's Messiah project. In oh the, yeah. In yeah. The you're okay. absolutely right. And so that was interesting that, yeah, we were part of the young Messiah thing and uh, that's right. Right. Young. Messiah. Yep. And, and so that I, I, uh, uh, which was a wonderfully put together project. Paul Mills was a guy who did a lot of the the arranging and scoring for that. But I I, I did the vocal scoring for us because we we had five singers in the band, so right. we traded all that off. But anyway, yeah, that was fun for me because it had been such a part of my roots. But yeah, then I, then I started to play trombone. I went to college and it was going to be, I don't know what I was going to be <laughs> uh, for a lot of reasons, but I, I was in the music program at Ball State University and um, playing trombone and, and, and I'm not even sure exactly how this happened, but I, I got a call to play some sessions and it was at the studio, which was like 30 minutes away from Ball State. But I later found out that it was owned, the studio was owned by some people called the Gaithers. <laughs> and, and I had grown up Lutheran and I had literally no idea who the Gaithers were. Gotcha. Not, not a clue. But after I graduated, I was, I had been in a, in a few bands that played up in, in the resort areas in mid, Northern Michigan in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from somebody and this had been the second time, third time, this is now the third time they'd called and said they wanted me to audition for this group. And I thought, well, you know what? All right, I'll go back down and I'll, I'll do that. And so I auditioned and I, I don't know if they thought I was different from the way I was sitting in the sessions because they were, you know, they weren't Christian session players. They were just, you know, really the best players around Indiana. Right. And right. I got the job and literally three days later, I was playing for 13,000 people. And oh, my goodness. On stage with the Gaithers. <laughs> and it, it was wonderful. And then about two years later, the keyboard job opened up and I thought, well, so I auditioned for that and was fortunate enough to get that because I was starting to get to the place where it, even in my faith, there were some things that were going on in my uh, wonderful, wonderful Christian family that were, mm -hmm. were a little, little tough to understand. I felt the need to express myself other than just playing through a, through a trombone and certainly keyboards offered more writing possibilities. And right. Absolutely. So at that time, then five of the six original members of Whiteheart were actually paying playing backup for the Gaithers. Yeah, that is so interesting. I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated by that. And we'll, we'll move a little further into that um, here in a minute. Now, now, Bryn, how did you start playing? Did you start playing at early age? What was that like for you? Uh, yeah, I started playing piano. Um, I have a sister who's three or four years older than I am. And my mom played piano. She had my sister in lessons, you know, like we do for our kids. I would go and to the piano and kind of start playing the melody of the little squirrel song or whatever, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever little kid song. And my mom was sort of like, Oh, well, I guess we need to get Bryn some lessons because <laughs> she seems to be picking that up uh, and be interested in it. So that was, you know, my mom 
uh, got me in, in lessons. So that's how I started. And then in, in middle school, I took interest in, um, well, actually in fifth grade, I lived with, my parents were divorced when I was quite young. Mm-hmm. And my dad lived in a different state. So, you know, it was really a broken home. I went to live with my dad one year in, in Dallas, Texas. He uh, took me to the YWCA and I took acoustic guitar lessons playing Let It Be, Let Me Tell Ya. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, all those great little beginner <laughs> songs. And so that's how I started playing acoustic guitar I was in fifth grade and then just uh, really loved it in, into middle school. That is awesome. Now, I heard somebody say that many are the players, few are the writers, and far fewer are the good writers. And I would certainly put you both in the latter. Oh, my what a compliment. <laughs> that is like the biggest compliment I've ever had. <laughs> now, Bryn, when did you start writing? And how long did it take for you to recognize, wow, you know, this actually sounds pretty good? What was that like for you to just from going to being a player? to being a writer? Wow, that's a that's a really good question. Um, Well, when I was in middle school, I went to a Christian camp and I did have my very first encounter with the living God there and my first encounter with the spirit of God. So I would write songs and this camp was called Forest Home there in California. I was so inspired by the nature there. And and so I wrote songs and I actually was writing songs now that um then I think about it when I picked up that guitar in fifth grade, uh, when I was living with my dad. So I, I started writing then, you know, God must have just implanted something in my DNA that I, I think truly he knew that I was I was going to get into some hard times in my life that mm-hmm. he would deliver me from. And I would have this love for, for Jesus. I could use that gift he put in me to express it and that he could use that in turn to minister to his people. It's a very, very difficult assignment, honestly, to be able to write things that have spiritual meaning, but that are artistically set apart. Now, Mark, what was that like for you? You'd mentioned moving over to keyboard from trombone with the Gaithers gave you more writing ability. When did you start to write? And I was reading last night that Whiteheart had 16 number ones and you wrote 15 of them or something. I mean, you really were such a core of that writing for Whiteheart. How did you transition into just being a player to being a writer that's an interesting question. I, you know, I think that the intermingling of the literary aspects of my family with the musical aspects certainly created a bed for that. The sound of words, the feel of words, all that mattered. Art in general, my mother had, we had a vacant law in our dining room and my mother would go down to the public library and you could rent out pieces of art wow. and on your card for six weeks at a time. So th- there'd be a Rembrandt up there for a while. Then there'd be a Van Gogh. There'd be, and so that all became part of, interestingly, the visual merging with, this, with, this, with the sounds of music and the sounds of words, all that came together. But it, it really was, I always, you know, even in high school, I started, I would write some stuff. I just throw it in the corner and never do anything about it. A lot of jazz heads because I was you know, I was in a band when I was 15 year old. I got asked by some guys who were three, two and three years older than me. And mm-hmm. which was a great training ground of learning how to play in a band, you know. Yeah. You know, how bass, you know, basses and kicks, drums 
marry together. All those all those things that are primal to the understanding of how a band is built. Mm-hmm. I, I learned that from really, really good people. And and so that all came in together and helped me in my experience. But it was, I think, partially when night after night you're sitting there listening to the Gaithers and whether people enjoy, you know, it, it was a little bit older music. It was a step ahead. There was, there's some hymnody. There's some Southern gospel. But there's this wonderful sense of song that those two people are marvelous at. They know how to write songs. And Mm -hmm. I was just drawn by the craft of it. And I was also drawn by the fact that people would walk into those huge arenas and two and a half hours later, they walk out happier, different, more settled people because heard songs that meant something to them. They'd worshiped in that place. They laughed in that place. Some of them cried in that place. And Mm -hmm. some of them were changed in that place. And it went right back to the heart of the music. And so one (laughs) weekend, I came up to Gloria Gaither, and this was after I'd had a, a, a very, very difficult experience in, in my family. My father had had a major heart attack, and, and God is so faithful and such a healer mm-hmm. and such a lover and such a shepherd. And anyway, so that's when I started to feel like, you know what? I want to mingle my musical gift with the experiences of my life, and what better way to do that than writing? And so I started to, to write some things. And that weekend, I tentatively handed the, these lyrics to Gloria Gaither. The following week, she comes and sits down with me and she's got my lyrics. And like the good school teacher she had once been, she's written in the margins with a red pen. <laughs> you know. And she said, now this is, I just remember specifically this. Now, this is a really great line. But can you kind of see how it doesn't fit in with what the rest of what you're saying when she really could have just said write a better song you know it, 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 she was That's, so kind yeah and it just inspired me to, to to work at that craft and i do agree with bryn when, when she was saying earlier that it is hard to write when there's centuries of christian songs that have been written i get i get all that at the same time if you really believe that god is the lord of all your life what can't you write about and i'm grateful that both of our bands were around in the 80s and the 90s where Quite honestly, it was just a little bit uh, freer. Yeah. You know, there was a merging and mingling that arose out of the Jesus movement music where some people had their lives radically transformed and they wanted to write in the pop music form about that. And that Mm -hmm. evolved into many subjects that a lot of people honestly don't even handle right now. But there was a freedom to write about and express things about your own life, you know, to really unearth some of those things that was not available really before that and and to a lesser degree even now. And so I felt grateful for that. But what I have found through the years, that the songs that I needed the most myself, that I was most honest as a writer with myself, when I was most on my knees before the Lord or laughing in joy before the Lord, those songs are the ones that mean the most to other people. So I, I just think for in my advice for anybody who would be writing from a Christian music perspective or playing from a Christian music perspective, if you're honest with what the Lord is doing in your life, you seek him first and him alone, people are going to notice. They're going to feel the authenticity of that. And you're going to be writing something that's unique and you're going to be playing something that's memorable and the world will be better for it. That's really incredible. I mean, that really shows me where so many of those great white heart songs came from there was a a level of 
realness. I know that's not really a word, but you look at songs like, well, Desert Rose would be one of them, but um, Storyline, where it's very personal, people that are struggling with real things and struggling through life. It's interesting how I can see what you're saying comes out in many of those songs. I, I love that. Now with Whiteheart, you guys, you know, you made 11 studio albums plus compilations, a live album. Do you ever go back and listen to, to any of those albums? It, it was so interesting when we would make those records. Uh, once again, I, I have been so blessed because coming from the foundation, you know, the Gaithers hired good people. They were unafraid to hire good people. I mean, Sandy Patty was in the, the backup group. Steve Green wow. was the backup group with us yeah. when we, you know, when we were with with the Gaithers. And you know, the, yes, they'll sound better if they have great musicians with them. But they're also unafraid to help other people out. They were very gracious in their spirits, and so for that reason, Whiteheart always had. You know, I just was so blessed to play with literally some of the best players in the world. Mm -hmm. They were playing. I mean, if your listeners would know all the major country and pop artists. Oh, yeah. Guys from our band have played on or produced or written the songs for you. You would be really stunned. I, I can't praise my bandmates enough. They were they're just great musicians. And so when we were in the process of making those records, there was a there was a high bar when you played on stage. There was a high bar. You had to bring your A game every night, <laughs> which I appreciate. And because you want to give the best to people anyway. But but it was that level of accountability as players just to a level, uh, a musical standard. So when we would finish those records, you know, I would just personally, I would I listen back, make sure everything was right. And then I wouldn't listen again until right before the next record was going to be started. I would go back and listen to the last record. And I think. Like I, you always hear the things that you wish you would have done a little differently, or you, you, you played the album on a road for three quarters of a year and you thought, you know what, I want this sound instead of that or whatever. And yeah. so I'd listen again and the same process would happen. But uh, we recently did um, not too long ago, a couple of years, three years ago now, I guess we did a, a freedom um, 30th anniversary concert. I saw that. I saw it. And we went head. back and, listen to that and it was it was fun for me because it's almost an out-of-body experience because you in friend experiences this is what's like did i did i write that it, it was like <laughs> oh i guess i did but but then you remember the why and you had mentioned earlier like storyline that so many of the whiteheart songs came from and desert rose is another one came from me uh, talking, we always go out afterwards, you know, after the last note, which is honestly where you're tired of us, and there's a lot of ambient noise in the hall and your your voice gets strained. But ask, you could always tell when there'd be something in the corner of somebody's eyes. And yeah, maybe they wanted an autograph, but they really wanted to tell you something that was going on. Oh, they'd life. wait all night. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was great. They'd wait all night till you were done. And I mean, I would think we both agree that the most <laughs> ministry happened after the last note. Yeah. yeah. And that's where Storyline came from.
you know, all these people, they they made that's why I wrote it was just the impression of like, oh, my all the desert roses. So many kids that were in their high schools or middle schools, and they felt like they were the only ones there that believed and they were paying a price for their faith. Yeah. And so I just wanted to honor them by writing that song. Well, it's so interesting. I, I have a Desert Rose story that I've I've told several times. I was about 19 and I was at work. I was getting ready to eat my lunch and bowed my head to give thanks. And when I finished, I looked up, I saw several people looking at me with a smirk, like, really? What's the big deal? Why are you, why are you doing this? And that Friday at our youth group, I printed the lyrics to Desert Rose because the line, sometimes holiness can feel like emptiness. When you feel the whole world's laughing eyes, it, that stuck out to me in that moment. Sometimes holiness can seem like emptiness. When you feel the whole world's laughing read through that and I kind of talked through that. We played the song and I shared my experience. Well, that weekend I was a bachelor then I was young. And so I'd spent the weekend with a couple that was uh, already married, dear friends of mine, Tom and Anna spent the weekend with them. Anna was so sweet. She made my lunch for me on, on Monday morning. I went to work that day. And when I opened up the bag to take my lunch out and she had inserted the lyrics to desert rose in the bag for me. Oh, such a touching moment. I started tearing up because it was just a reminder of God's presence. Even when we feel the whole world's laughing eyes that the father knows, like the song says. So such a a impactful song to me personally. Thank you for telling that story. Those are the stories that make a writer feel like it was worth their time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, it seemed to me like with Whiteheart, and we'll stick with Whiteheart for just a little bit here. When Rick Florian joined the band, it seemed like it just put you guys on a different trajectory. As a fan, that's how I see it. Now, from somebody who was on the inside, do you see it that way? Or, or how was that period for you when, when Rick joined you guys on vocals? Uh, yeah, I, that's, that is true. You know, it was a, a pivotal moment in the history of the band. But, it, you know, Rick, <laughs> Rick used to set up my keyboards. That was his first job. <laughs> and the sound company, they, there was a song uh, 
was it Paul Young? Every time you go away. Oh yeah, yeah. They would tune the room with that. So tuning the room is is they want to make sure the sound is is operating at its 100% best. So they run pink and white noise through and they tune the room so the speakers are in the uh, and the EQ set right. And they would do that song and Rick would walk up to the mic and he would mime the words. <laughs> and, and there were a number of times that Billy and I were sitting out in the, in the by the sound desk just to hear what it's going to sound like that night. And we would look up at him and we, we and we say to each other, like, man, if that guy could even really sing, he'd be amazing because he's got he had all these moves. You know, yeah. he's just goofing around. That's oh, all yeah, yeah. Was goofing around. Well, when our position for lead singer opened up, he tried out and he didn't quite have the range because it's a very demanding lot. And so, but we didn't find a singer we liked. So then we tried, had another round of tryouts and he tried it out again and he was, or he'd gained it some more notes. We didn't settle on anybody. We had a third round of tryouts and he came in and he was fully formed. Wow. And so our first concert then was at, up at Wheaton, Illinois, Wheaton College. Rick didn't know if he was going to stick with the band. It was like a trial thing to see if he could, he could do it live. And his mom and dad rented a Greyhound bus and 60 of his family members were there (laughs) (laughs) because they thought maybe this will be the only time that we'll see Rick sing with Whiteheart. Well, uh, he stuck around, but yes, he's just such a gifted singer. Yeah, truly. Oh my gosh. And since you're a musician, you'll understand this. A lot of singers don't think they need to have a sense of time. Yeah, drummers and guitar players, bass players, keyboard players, sure, yeah. Right. Singers need a sense of time, and he has the best sense of time of any singer I've ever worked with, and I've worked really? with a lot of singers. Wow. Oh, mm-hmm. he's amazing. And lyrically, he wants the words to fit in his mouth rhythmically so they, they feel good. But I will say this about him for all his vocal giftings. He is one of the humblest, nicest people you will ever meet. He called me uh, about a year ago and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. He's just checking to make sure we're okay. And I said, where do you do? You sound like you're in the car. Well, he had some friends from church that are out of town. They have a son who's handicapped. So he's driving through the snowstorm to go to the CVS pharmacy to pick up the medicine for this kid. That's Rick Florian in a nutshell. Well, and then as an entertainer, just all his moves and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because we're still really close with Rick and his wife, Lisa. I mean, we before COVID would get together at their house like once a month with a a certain group. Gordon Kennedy being one of those people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And just have dinner. I mean, and enjoy each other's company and fellowship. You know, I look at some of my favorite songs that you guys did and they're a lot of them where you guys sang together. And I love the, actually you have that with Bryn as well. Your voices are so different, but complementary. Yours is a little more earthy. And then in a song like heaven of my heart or the flame passes on, or um, even lay it down where, where there's just a little bit of Rick, the distinction between your guys's voices was so beautiful. I love when you guys sh- shared lead. That's a God thing. It's, you work at it some, but it was it was a great handoff. And, you know, and he's just got that marvelous range and yes. buck wild quality in <laughs> that, even with a pure voice. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I don't care for in today's 
modern music is so many of the singers, they sound the same. They they all sound alike. Gordon Kennedy has a funny thing. He he says, who is the first one that sang like that, that everyone thought they should copy her now or, you know, and um, so some of the diversity between Gersh and Rick uh, was great. And uh, in Rachel, Rachel, we kind of had the same thing on a female level because our guitar player, Helly, had that Bonnie Raitt kind of soulful smokiness. Yeah. And then Cheryl, our lead singer, oh my gosh, I'm going to talk about what a range. Amazing. Amazing. She's a great singer. singer. She's just, uh, I mean, she's like the female Rick Florian when it comes to vocals. And, um, and then there's me who I'm stuck with the really high parts and I just don't have a powerful voice. It's just, I'm not a belter. And I was in a band in arena rock days and it's like, well, if you couldn't belt, you pretty much couldn't sing. So, <laughs> well, but the, but the weird thing is though, in that, in that blend and they were night after night, after night, after night, you know, on tour with us on, yeah. they were just on, they were just tight. They sounded great together, these three very different voices. But the the interesting thing is, though, is Brynn, because she was singing that high part, you know, her smaller voice was clear, but she pulled it off. I mean, she totally pulled it off and it needed that. You know, a lot of times that'll be almost if you think of a a pyramid, the way the voices are formed would be Helly with that deeper voice and often uh, Cheryl in the middle and then Bryn High. It's, you know, everything points toward the sky there, you know, with the pyramid and Helly gave it that nice, big, firm bass. And and uh, it's amazing the way they sang together. They were really good. Even live, I I was really blown away by you guys. I was a fan, so I knew your your songs really well, and how well you pulled off. Because I mean, you know, you could do anything in the studio. You can do all these layers and textures, and and but, that that was the day of Def Leppardy kind of yes. You know, let's let's all let's run a vocal pass, and we'll all three sing. Okay, let's run another vocal pass, yes. and we'll all three sing. And then we let's do it again because that's what the sound was back in those days. Right, the Mutt Lang's influence. You're right, especially on background vocals was was yeah. huge. Marco, I just want to talk a little bit more about Whiteheart because you know you guys, eleven studio albums. Your guys' catalog is is really incredible. And as a fan, it seems like once when you guys recorded Freedom and then went to Powerhouse, Tales of Wonder. And Highlands, like that stretch of albums, I think to me as a fan stands out in another stratosphere that because I think the writing, the production, the, the musicality, everything was just, and of course the message was like, you guys had hit a stride there that I think stands against anybody's in any genre. 
when you look back at those four albums, do you see those as, as really kind of special, even amongst a great catalog or, or is it just me as a fan who sees it that way? I mean, I see it that way. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think you're right. And, uh, and I am very grateful for your kind words. I do think that it was an amazing stretch. And part of it was, you know, there was a lot going on in the world. There were a lot going on in our lives. I, I've always felt that one of the great privileges of Christian music is to examine the events of your own life in the light of God's word, mm-hmm. in the light of the fellowship of the people you're with. And to try to say something that's meaningful to the world, that say, he's helped me this way. God has come into my life in this way. Maybe he can do the same for you. Yeah. And there was a sense of spiritual urgency and musical excellence, I think, that was around at that period of time. You know, Brown Bannister certainly started some of that, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I do think that that stretch was remarkable. I, I just feel honored to have been a part of it because I felt like I learned so much, mm. not about just about music. But I learned a lot about God's people as we tried to admit, you know, to minister to them, and which is finally what it's all about. Now, I, you know, Six Flags, obviously, your the live album, uh, live at Six Flags, that was so early on in your guys' career. I would have loved to have a live album from later, from any of those later tours. Is there anything in the vault that you guys is worthy of? of a of release in some fashion we almost recorded the freedom uh reunion thing that we did just a little while ago yeah we almost did it and it was we deliberately chose a more intimate venue because we wanted to have that kind of relationship with the people that came so it's like 800 people nice that's the biggest as the church was and and we had really good people there we had the capability of pulling it off but uh i think it was gordon primarily said you know what we kept this small for a reason. You know, we kind of wanted this intimacy. I just want to go in and play. Yeah. And I, I just want to go in and talk to these people. I don't have to want to worry about something else being right. Or And everybody kind of went, yeah. I don't know in the future if anything comes along. You never know. We didn't think we'd do that. A quick side from that, Gordon was playing with Garth Brooks at that time. And Garth said, he said, well, I'll, t- I'll take the gig, but I can't work this date, which was the date we were going to do things. <laughs> and lo and behold, Garth booked a, booked a date. And, in and Oregon. In Oregon. Garth very kindly said, you know what? Love you. Do your thing. We'll figure out another way to do this. So he wow. let Gordon off for the night. And Gordon kindly said, he said, I love you, bro. You mean a lot to me. And, and Gordon said, well, if I hadn't been in this band, he writes him back, you wouldn't love me as much. He says that just being in, being in Whiteheart just made him dig in deeper to the, to the message that he'd heard his, through his life. And it just deepened his walk. And Gordon's got a great walk with the Lord. And that's uh, awesome. And he's yeah. such a gifted player and his, oh. I love his guitar sound. Now, Bryn, with Rachel, Rachel, you guys had, you know, a shorter run, but you guys certainly left your mark and you rose pretty quickly. What was that like for you? Um, you Obviously, it sounds like you'd been in bands before, but I mean, you guys really got propelled really quickly. Your first album came out now, The Gates, you guys were on the road, getting some radio play on some major tours. What was that like for you guys? It's funny because... Gersh and I kind of tell our stories and there's a lot of similarities to them in the way it all happened. And, you know, I came out of a cocaine addiction. I I came to church uh, because I was at the end of myself. I accepted Christ that morning and he delivered me from my addiction. Right then and there, I went to a vineyard in Santa Monica. I had a radical conversion 
And then uh, luckily that particular church had a counseling department. I was in a lot of therapy that was very, very spirit filled and spirit based for a couple of years. And as I was, you know, coming out of a life of debauchery, I mean, really, and trying to uh, let the Lord teach me what my life is meant to be, you know, who he created me to be and, and why am I um, in so much pain that I'm anesthetizing myself all the time. I was married at the time to someone who I, I loved. I thought it was, you know, it, you change as you grow up <laughs> to know what, what love really does look like. So I, uh, I had this radical conversion experience and I'm writing songs out of my love for my new savior. Mm-hmm. And I would do them at church or, I mean, I had no agenda, none whatsoever, except for my love of Jesus. That was it. You know, long story short, I get a divorce because I just had to get away from that lifestyle. And my yeah. husband had no desire. I, I moved in with a, a girlfriend of mine in a high rise in West Hollywood. And um, she was also uh, someone I went to a music school with, and she was a keyboard player and singer and she went to a different church and someone approached her to be in this all girl Christian rock band. And she was just not interested. So she referred them to me. I was going to be doing a song at church that Sunday. And so I think it was Cheryl, our singer and Helly, our guitar player came and saw me. They realized that I could write and I sent them some of my songs and I really wasn't interested though, honestly. Yeah. It was like, you know, well, uh, I mean, okay. And I think I sent them some of my songs, but I was like, I was not like, Oh, this is awesome. I was just kind of like, eh. You know, I, I just don't know if I want to do that. And then I met with them and, you know, obviously I changed my mind. And <laughs> we, we had a lot of opportunities because of Billy Smiley from Whiteheart, mm-hmm. who was our producer. Um, I mean, we did one showcase at MIT in Hollywood, which I have the video of. We got signed. Wow. A word signed us. It was, it was just like, this is kind of odd. I mean, <laughs> really, that doesn't really happen. Billy Smiley was the one who really worked all that out for us, but he couldn't make up the mind of the record company that we had to get ourselves. So we did. And then we did two albums and the rest is history. (laughs) Yeah. Two great albums. I love both of them. And I didn't realize how instrumental you were in the writing aspect of it. Probably half of their songs you wrote or co-wrote. That's really incredible. Back, uh, part of my redemption from my former life, a cathartic experience would be to write a song about something that I was experiencing. Do you keep in touch with with any of the ladies that you played with back then? Funny, I am not really. I I talk to Cher uh, probably twice a year. We, Mm -hmm. We contact each other and she just texted me like a few months ago and she said, you know, I got all the, I think she was just cleaning out <laughs> yes. she all this, these videos and, you know, they're VCR videos. And I just thought the only person I know who could probably digitize these would be Bryn. Can I send them to you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, so she sends me a box that's like pretty big and I open it and there's all this stuff in it. <laughs> yeah. like the proofs from our photo shoot from our second album. 
if you're a fan of the band, you would have a great time going through. I mean, I didn't go to the gym that day when I brought the box in. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and let me just jump in and say, you're completely right. They were a great band and great talent. And I broke up the band because I decided I wanted to marry the keyboard player. And um, you were Yoko Ono. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was. I was the big Yoko. Oh, thank goodness. No, no, I did not sit by her side when she was riding with yeah. the group. When you're from California and you're in a band, especially at that point in time, you know, one of the great things about Nashville is it's centrally located. Right. You can drive 500 miles in any direction and hit a major, a major, major cities. Mm -hmm. um, if you're from California, you got to go over the Rockies. And when you go over the Rockies, you're going to be out a while. And Cheryl's husband, who was not a believer, had a hard time understanding why she was gone so long. And to uh, Cheryl's great credit, she made the right choice. They're still together. I don't know what his faith walk is now. I, I know hers is still strong. But all that to say is that kind of coincided with us getting married. So they were on the rise. They weren't selling less albums. They were selling more albums and really, really gaining a large international following. Yeah, and yeah. But but my marrying Mark really, I mean, he's joking. That was not, I mean, it was just one fact. We we were honestly ready to be done. Word would have well wanted us to do another record. But being on the road and with all women, and I know that's going to ruffle some people's feathers, it's not glamorous. It's, I mean, we didn't make money. I made some money as a writer a little bit. Back in those days, writers actually made money. You know, it was a struggle. It wasn't like this glamorous. We had a motorhome that we bought and we're driving ourselves all over the country. And we're, yeah. like Mark said, we had to stay out. Uh, Nashville's a hub, so you can you can go and come home. And then you can go and come home. Well, you can't in LA. You, you're, you're out, you're out. Right, so right. when we were on an eight-month tour, we were gone for four months, took a Christmas break, and another four or more months after that. I mean, wow. you are out and you're together that much in that small space. And it was, it was just really hard. And sure. we're just, we had to call the police several times. No, <laughs> that, that, that was not it wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, but anyway, we were just kind of exhausted and just, yeah. you know, I'd fallen in love with Mark and I wanted to get out of California. It was just time out of that you know has been birthed soul breather i mean you guys your first album 7.8 came out in 2012 obviously so you guys met on the road fell in love got married now what made you guys want to start making music together i mean to us on the outside it would seem naturally you're both gifted songwriters singers musicians it just well of course you're going to make music together but maybe not necessarily so what made you guys start wanting to write together and and to create under under that moniker. After Whiteheart, uh, there was a, a little bit of time pass, and I ended up doing a solo record, which was interesting. It was um, such a good record. Have you heard that one, Brian? Uh, the Gersh Awakening record. Oh yes, yep. Yeah. In fact, I I think I still have the CD. I'm sure that I do. Interestingly enough, afterwards, it was time for me to start touring, and it started by me call, calling my mom, which I did frequently. She's still up in Northern Indiana. Oh, cool. And and I was talking to her and I would say, so mom, your 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 cold is really bad. And she said, I don't have a cold. I was like, all right, uh, <laughs> whatever. And then I'd call her a couple of days, three days, four days later. Mom, you need to, have you seen a doctor about your cold? Maybe it's your sinuses. I don't have a cold. 
And so finally, after about two and a half, three weeks of this, I always held the phone in my left hand because I would oftentimes write with my right hand while I was talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. And I switched the phone when I was talking to my mom to my other ear, and I realized she didn't have a cold. Is I had had an acute viral infection in my inner ear. It, listening to the dial tone in the phone, it was an E in one ear and a C in the other. Wow. So, and I had a marvelous, marvelous, you jump through a lot of hoops when you're, when you got those kind of problems. And I, I got up to one of the top three neuroacoustic surgeons from, uh, in the world from Vanderbilt and they tried some experimental stuff and it didn't work. And uh, it was, you know, it's pretty, I thought it was done period. So I didn't tour my record. I didn't, you know, didn't do any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And finally they said, well, we kind of reached the end of what we can do for you now, but we sh- you should check in. We'll schedule a six months audiology report, you know, for test. Six months later, I go for a test and the audiologist who was always so wonderful to me. After I did the test, I came out and she said, you know, I got to say to you, oh, we see progress in three years we've never seen before. Wow. And I wanted to tell her I probably should have. It's like, well, I you want to know why that happened? (laughs) Yeah, I know that my mother and my sister have been praying for me every day. The Lord healed me to the point that I could start working. So out of that, finally, and and we're talking after a lot of years, she and I had always, you know, sung things around. We listened to music together, but she started, you know, she's always been this acoustic guitar player, wonderful finger picking guitar player. She started to write from that perspective instead of keyboards. And there's this, this dance that happens between the wood and her voice and her writing. That wood and that acoustic guitar changes the way that she writes and she was marvelous before but she's even better now and and i think that stepping up to you know the microphone again in that environment where that acoustic guitar is influencing the sound of things and there's and i'm playing a lot i didn't play much piano in whiteheart played a lot of synths you know, I grew up a piano player, so I started to sit down and play a little bit. And she saunters in the room with her acoustic guitar and I said, hey, what about this idea? What about this idea? And I and I, I write a lot of my songs now uh, when I run. I start a lot of things here. I mean, I'll, I'll go out and run and come up with a whole musical thing, you know, sometimes even lyrics. And I'll come back uh-huh. and I'll sit down and, uh, and I'll play what I heard when I was running. And I'll be like, that intermingling of, of the acoustic guitar and she's learned so much about her voice. Um, I really embraced Sean Colvin and um, Sarah McLaughlin and all those artists that came out. Yeah, Jonathan Brooke. Oh, I love her because they were acoustic singer songwriters who were not belty singers, beautiful singers though. It's funny. I think um, Gersh always says you're a better singer now than you've ever been. And I think Mm. that's true. If there is a word that I would put to to the work that you guys are doing in Soul Breather, it's encouraging. Especially, you know, as I look at your new album, I think there are two songs that I think kind of encapsulate everything that's going on the title track, but also I will not be cast down. Those are very, very encouraging, uplifting songs. Is that was that your intention? when you started writing or did kind of just shape naturally out of, you know, what you guys are experiencing and living through right now? We wrote a lot of that, you know, during the whole COVID thing. It was and remains in some ways such a confusing time in life and in our country. So we did want to write songs to give people hope, to give people encouragement. So I started finding things where people put musically put uh, scripture to uh, song. 
Yeah. Because some of it's very left footed because it's it's not song form and it's not something that I'm gifted at doing. And and I started on my walks um, listening to these songs and memorizing scripture, you know, lots of prayer during my walk. So many of the ideas that we had for this record, especially like one of the songs toward the end is You Give Me Rest, which is a really, really simple, simple song. Well, I wrote that while I was walking because I thought this is what I need to hear in the midst of COVID, in the midst of all of this stuff is just God, you know, the truth is is you give me rest no matter what. I want this song to be something somebody can lie in bed at night and it's so simple. They can just sing it to themselves and it can give them rest and it can give them peace and it can give them love, feel, help them to feel the love of God. And, you know, I will not be cast down. Gersh came up with that idea. From Psalm 43. I mean, it started with an idea to, to make some simpler kind of songs. It blossomed as we got into production into a bit more than that. But I'll give you a little window in a short period of time, just what, what Soul Wither is about and why we chose that name. And it's a little S because we believe there is a capital S Soul Breather. And it goes back to Genesis 2, 7. So, you know, God um, breathed in us the breath of life and we became living things. You know, he could have, he could have mass produced us. He didn't. So why are you here? It's our great gift in life and privilege to take what he's put inside of us and to do something for the glory of God and the good of his people. The simple message is breathe, breathe out, breathe life into the world. Yeah. You've got it because he gave it to you. It's your great joy. He has mentioned the song, You Give Me Rest. I sat as I was prepping last night, my family was already in bed and I was listening through the new album, just again, just getting it, soaking it in. And when that song came on, the the melody, the the production, that opening flute, the, the melody of that, that song is just so beautifully put together and written. journey it's got a very wide soundscape beautiful guitar playing i imagine that's you right bryn playing guitar yeah. on that one yes. she did it's a such a job. beautiful beautiful piece and i love that i can't i can't figure out which is my favorite that one or i will not be cast down i think are two of my favorites on there well you mentioned and the light shines on the title track i just think that that needs to be an anthem for christians in this day and age in the dark of the night 
talk about how people can support your work and ministry and how they can get your music. Is there anything else you guys want to share about your new album that you'd want people to know? We're grateful for anybody who joins us on this journey. And don't be surprised if if something that you told us ends up in a song. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's beautiful. And so the, the, the best place people can buy your music is soulbreather.com, right? And I, yeah, I sure. noticed... Yeah, I noticed. Uh, so if somebody's new to your music, you guys have a, a great bundle right now. I noticed uh, all four of your CDs for 40 bucks, which is a really awesome deal. So if people don't have your catalog, it's a great entryway. Soulbreather.com is a great place to get started. You guys also have some merch. What other items do you guys have? We are literally independent musicians with, we put together some product to go with our uh, new release. And so we have t-shirts and we have hats and we have these cool canvas tote bags. Um, There's just all kinds of stuff on the Soul Breather store, which the link is at soulbreather.com. Help us spread the word, you know, buy buy a Soul Breather t-shirt. It still is a great privilege that anybody would listen to our music. I'm honored by that. And I always felt like when somebody could be traveling on a Friday at 5.30, after the best or worst day of your life, and somebody slides in your CD or pulls up your download Mm -hmm. on their iPhone, and you're sitting in the front seat with them. You know, they chose to have you there with them. And that has always felt like an enormous privilege to me. And so anybody that wants to take a look at what we're doing, we hope it means something to you. We, But more than anything, we hope it points you to the one who loves you far more than you could ever imagine. Wow. And I think that line would really encapsulate what you guys have done your entire professional careers. And that's very, very, very well said, Mark. I am so appreciative of you guys. And as a supporter of independent musicians, I'm with you. Streaming is great, but it takes thousands and thousands and thousands of streams for an artist to make what they would make off one CD sale. So I always encourage people (laughs) for independent artists, buy a CD. It puts gas in the tank. It helps to fund the next project. And it's something that you could even give away to others. So I strongly encourage that. So Gersh and Bren, I am so grateful for your time. I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat. I would love people to, um, that was my doorbell. I would love people <laughs> go to soulbreather.com where you can, you can pick up the, the new project. You can get a bundle of all four and help support great art and great work that's being done by Gersh and Bryn. And for everybody listening, thank you. And wherever you listen, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, give a like or subscribe or leave a kind review, throw some stars as I continue to build this podcast and looking forward to next time when we join the next journey to the stage. <laughs>